So thank you so much for coming. I'm Annie Lowry. I'm a reporter at the New York Times. And uh, we're here to talk about why growth might be getting harder and why growth is so slow and uh, what we can do about it. Um, so the panelists are Martin Bailey, who's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the director of their business and public policy initiative. Um, he has of late done a lot of research into growth and how to speed it up. Uh, Brink Lindsay is vice president of research at Cato. Uh, he's a lawyer and uh, has written many books on growth, trade, other topics. And Tyler Cowan is a professor at George Mason University. He's the uh, co-proprietor of the very popular blog, Marginal Revolution. And he's the author most recently of Average is Over, which is for sale also. <laughs> and I think you might even be able to get signatures after the event. Um, right outside. And so, you know, I'll go quite quickly to, to the panelists who are each going to talk for a couple minutes um, uh, before we open it up for Q&A. Uh, but just to give a sense of, of the scope of the issue uh, that, that uh, we're talking about today, growth currently is about 1.8% per year right now. Um, obviously, in historical terms, that's quite low, and especially for a uh, recovery period. Uh, and that growth uh, has also not benefited uh, many families in the way that it did in the past. The United States has grown about 75% in real terms since 1989, uh, but median incomes are flat in real terms since then. Uh, so so it's, a, it's a big, complicated issue. And so I think that Brink is, is going to speak first for about 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> How do I uh, get the uh, <laughs> presentation up? Anyone know? You're the director of research. I am. <laughs> there it is. Good job. <laughs> I just look panicked, and somebody will do something for me. Um, okay, well, it's a great pleasure to be here, Annie. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, thanks, all of you, for uh, coming and uh, out of a brilliant, beautiful fall day to listen to a, a fairly dreary topic. Um, just for context, uh, in the 20th century, uh, we had a recurring pattern of a huge macroeconomic crisis or uh, fluctuation uh, gave rise to a cottage industry of speculation that perhaps this was the new normal. Uh, so in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, you had Keynesian economists who were known as secular stagnationists who argued this is the way it's going to be from now on. We're a mature economy. Population growth is slowed. Uh, absent huge uh, uh, public sector investment, uh, uh, growth is going to lag uh, <laughs> indefinitely. Uh, that turned out not to be the case uh, as the post-war boom uh, rocketed and, uh, and surprised all of the uh, doomsayers. In the 1970s, uh, we had the oil price shocks and uh, inflation and then uh, uh, some uh, steep recessions as well amidst uh, growing concern about environmental degradation, which led rise, gave rise to a whole bunch of commentary that, uh, that affluence was over, that we now were experiencing uh, limits to growth, uh, either resource limits or social limits. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, once again, uh, the naysayers were uh, proven to be wrong. Uh, but uh, you know the story of the boy who cried wolf. We all know he cried it falsely several times. We forget that in the story, at the end of the story, he was right. The wolf really did come. Uh, so uh, perhaps we're in that situation uh, now. Uh, and <clears throat> the, uh, the slowdown in growth 
that we've experienced even since the Great Recession ended uh, could perhaps uh, be uh, the shape of things to come. And indeed, I believe that there are good reasons for believing so. Uh, just to lay out the context here, uh, this is uh, growth in real GDP per capita in the United States since the advent of the mass production, mass distribution economy in the late 1800s, 140-year period. Uh, the average uh, growth in real GDP per capita annually during that uh, time was 2%. Uh, and you see, uh, it, with the exception of the jag downwards during the Great Depression, the jag upwards uh, during the World War II mobilization, uh, that the trend line stays remarkably close to that uh, 2% figure the whole time. Uh, so even in the midst of, uh, of uh, cataclysmic social transformations and huge changes in the structure of the economy, uh, there has been something imperturbable about the U.S. economy's uh, trend, long-term trend of growing uh, at 2% a year in real GDP per capita. However, if you look at uh, current forecasts of long-term growth, so these aren't forecasts of, uh, of short-term <clears throat> recovery uh, from, uh, from the recession. These are estimates of the potential growth rate that is assuming that all resources are, uh, are being deployed. Uh, how much is the US economy going to grow over the next various different time frames? And all of these, uh, uh, these uh, forecasts or projections uh, show uh, growth uh, in per capita terms, well below 2%. Uh, so ranging from uh, Dale Jorgensen's 1.05 to the Federal Open Market Committee's uh, 1.63. Uh, but uh, this is really something uh, new under the sun. For 140 years, uh, we've been rollicking along at 2% uh, uh, real growth in, uh, in GDP per capita. And now it looks like most of the people uh, who are uh, <clears throat> looking into their crystal ball and looking at the long-term potential growth of the U.S. economy are seeing uh, a discontinuation of that long-term trend. Let's look at why they're saying this. Uh, growth can be broken down into, uh, into four constituent elements. First, let's break it down into two. Uh, labor's participation, hours worked per capita, uh, and then labor productivity or output per hour. So uh, hours worked times output per hour gives you output, uh, <clears throat> but labor productivity in turn uh, breaks down into three different elements. So how do you improve output per worker? Uh, one way is you make smarter, more skillful, better trained workers, uh, labor skills or labor quality, as economists sometimes call it. Uh, second, you can give workers more or better tools uh, to improve their output. Uh, this is in more investment per worker or capital deepening. And finally, uh, you can innovate. You can come up with new ideas for new products or new production processes that allow uh, a greater amount of output from a given quantity of labor and capital inputs. This is what economists know as total factor productivity. Uh, so I'm going to walk through all four of these elements and show why trends in all of them these days are unfavorable. Let's start with uh, labor participation. Uh, first, let's look at labor force participation, the percentage of the population that's in, uh, the adult population that's in the workforce. Uh, this is a graph over the 20th century. Uh, and you see the big news, the big story over the 20th century was rising female labor force participation uh, as women moved out of the home and into uh, the, um, uh, the money economy. Uh, <clears throat> 
Men's labor force participation has actually been falling gently for decades uh, due to uh, more time spent in school, delayed entry into the workforce, also due to longer lives and longer time spent in, her in retirement. Uh, but the uh, steady uh, increase of uh, female labor force participation was enough to lift uh, the overall mobilization of the economy uh, upwards over the course of the 20th century. Uh, and there's really no easier way to get uh, more GDP per capita uh, than to get a higher and higher percentage of your population making GDP for a living. And that's what we did. Uh, but uh, that process uh, plateaued uh, at the end of the 1990s uh, as uh, women's convergence with male rates has uh, not completed, but it's gotten a lot closer. Uh, but then everybody's uh, labor force participation has been falling in the 21st century. It fell. Uh, as it usually does during the recession of 2000, but it never really recovered. Uh, and, uh, and then when the Great Recession hit, uh, <clears throat> labor force participation fell uh, precipitously uh, so that we're now at the same level of uh, labor force participation as we were in the 1970s. Uh, so we've basically given back uh, 35 years of rising, or 25 years uh, before the uh, fall started, of of rising uh, participation uh, due to demographic changes. So even if we get back to where we were in 2000, uh, it will be hard to make further progress from there, and it will be mathematically impossible to make commensurate progress uh, with what we uh, achieved during the 20th century. So just as a matter of math, this is a one-off change. You can only move women out of uh, the home and into the uh, wage economy once. We've done that substantially. There's not much more to do. If you look more comprehensively, not at labor force participation, but at hours worked per capita, that will include not only the labor force participation rate, but how much per week the average worker works. Uh, you'll see a more complicated picture over the course of the last 100 years, a general pattern of falling hours per capita from the beginning of the century to the middle of the 1960s. Um, that's due to a couple of factors. One, shorter work weeks. Uh, the average factory worker in 1900 worked a 12-hour day, six days a week. Um, also due to uh, moving uh, uh, children and young adults out of the workforce and into school. Uh, but since the mid-60s, the both rising labor force uh, participation for women and the influx of the baby boom uh, caused a rise in uh, average annual uh, hours worked per capita uh, until, again, 2000, and it's fallen off. So now, uh, one half of the equation, hours worked. The other half, output per hour, uh, <clears throat> hours worked is falling. Uh, and it does, if, even if it reverses that trend, it doesn't have a lot uh, uh, more upward uh, room to grow. Uh, so um, that means that if growth rates are going to stay where they have been in, in decades past, something is going to have to compensate for the loss of this tailwind of growth of rising hours worked. Well, if you can't get more workers to work, uh, good to make them smarter, good to make them uh, more skillful uh, so that an hour of their time is, produces more value uh, than an hour of a less skilled worker's time. Um, but here again, uh, uh, things are running out of gas. Uh, the, the main way in which uh, the US economy upgraded the skill level of its workforce during the 20th century was a huge increase in formal schooling. Uh, you can see the general trend line here, uh, steady increases, then a big 
rapid increase during the middle decades of the 20th century and then slower growth since then. So back in 1900, only 6% of uh, American teenagers graduated high school, just 6%, it's around 75% today. Um, about 2% or less uh, uh, graduated from college, uh, or young 20-somethings graduated from college, now that's around a third. Uh, so there's been enormous growth uh, in what uh, economists call labor quality, uh, which they measure and they infer from market wages. If people are making more, they assume that that is because they're more productive uh, and they see that more highly educated workers uh, make more and they assume that is a that they have a productivity advantage. Uh, and so, uh, <clears throat> uh, but so with the slowdown in educational attainment, we see a slowdown in labor quality as well. So slowdown in educational attainment, uh, the high school graduation rate today is lower than it was in the 1970s. So we've had no progress uh, on that front. Uh, as far as college graduation or college attainment is concerned, we've had con continued growth since 1980, but much slower than the quarter century before that. Uh, and all of the growth has been for women. Uh, the college uh, completion rate for men is the same today as it was in 1980. Uh, so a big slowdown in the rise in formal schooling. Um, so you see that uh, the <clears throat> average annual uh, percentage increase fell uh, from the middle of the 20th century to more recently uh, by over half. And when, you, when economists <clears throat> compute uh, uh, this in terms of labor quality, again, the increase in labor quality due to increased schooling uh, has fallen uh, considerably as well. Uh, so uh, that means on the labor side, we really don't have uh, much basis for assuming uh, that, uh, that, uh, that growth is going to be vibrant. Uh, neither hours worked nor skill levels look like they have much room to move upwards uh, over the coming decade or so. Uh, and so if we are going to see rising growth, we're going to have to see gains uh, in capital deepening and in total factor productivity that compensate for uh, the slower growth we have on the labor side. Uh, alas, when it comes to investment or capital deepening, we have uh, a long-term secular decrease in the investment rate, uh, which is tied to the better known long-term secular uh, decline in the savings rate. Uh, those two aren't equal because we can import capital. Uh, we've been running a current account uh, deficit, i.e. a capital surplus for decades now. That enables us, uh, enables our economy to maintain higher investment levels than our savings uh, levels allow, uh, but not infinitely more. And as you can see, they are tied together. And as the savings rate has fallen, so does the investment rate. Uh, perhaps this could change on a dime and we could see uh, a much greater mobilization of capital uh, to, uh, uh, to invest in workers and make their output more productive. Uh, but again, this is a long-term trend and it doesn't look like uh, there's anything on the horizon that suggests it's gonna turn around anytime soon. <clears throat> that puts all of the onus uh, on total factor productivity or innovation. Uh, economists measure this, uh, and uh, Martin Bailey is uh, an expert on the 
Byzantine complexities of measuring total factor productivity. But basically, it's an error term. Uh, it's, uh, it's what's left over when uh, economists have done everything they can to attribute growth to the inputs of capital or labor. When they've done that job as well and completely as they know how, what's left is total factor productivity, which is uh, inferred to be uh, the increases in output due to innovation. Uh, these, the total factor productivity growth rates uh, pop around a lot from year to year, quarter to quarter. But if you look at the long term, you can see uh, a kind of uh, <clears throat> mega trend of a rise and fall and a rise and fall. So over the course of the 20th century, rising productivity rates peaking in mid-century. Then in the 1970s, uh, a dramatic fall in productivity growth, uh, which perpetuated through the mid-90s. Uh, then fueled by uh, the internet boom uh, and, uh, uh, and generally uh, uh, revolutionary innovations throughout the information and communication technology sectors, uh, we did see a return to high productivity growth for about 10 years from 1996 to 2004. Uh, but since then, productivity growth has waned again. It's, it fell before the Great Recession started, uh, and it hasn't, uh, it hasn't uh, returned yet. Uh, now, this is the most unpredictable, I think, of the uh, four elements of growth. Uh, and so it is entirely conceivable that tomorrow uh, these numbers could change. Uh, we've had an ongoing uh, debate in the past couple of years, kicked off by Tyler Cowen's great stagnation, uh, as to how much gas is left in the innovation tank. That is, how many more great transformational ideas for improving the human condition are there really? Uh, uh, Tyler had argued uh, that we had... Uh, <clears throat> run rather low in the pipeline over the past 40 years, explaining the productivity slowdown of late. Uh, Robert Gordon uh, at Northwestern has argued more provocatively that we've run out more or less for good, uh, that nothing will ever compare uh, to the cluster of innovations uh, that hit the world in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, and that therefore the modern era of growth uh, that we've experienced over the past 250 years uh, is drawing to a close. Uh, I don't believe that. Uh, you don't have to believe that either to be pessimistic about the next 10 years. All you have to believe is, uh, that, uh, is that productivity growth <clears throat> isn't going to be at the highest levels we've seen uh, in over the past 100 years. And it would have to be at those levels to compensate for all the bad news we have in the other growth components. Now, again, it could be uh, that, that the 10-year boom in productivity growth we saw was just a throat clearing, and now we're in a pause before, uh, before a huge surge uh, in, uh, in growth facilitated by the ongoing progress of Moore's Law. Uh, there are uh, uh, very smart people who, who argued precisely that. Uh, MIT professor Eric Brynjolfsson uh, has the metaphor of the second half of the chessboard. Uh, you recall the legend of the uh, Chinese ruler who asked a wise man for advice and said, I'll give it to you for a price, name your price. Uh, I want one grain of rice on the first square of the chessboard, two grains on the second, four on the third, etc." cetera. Uh, the king said, what a steal, uh, I'll do that. Uh, when he got to about halfway through the chessboard, he realized that he was in trouble uh, and that, uh, that this price tag was gonna bankrupt him. Uh, so he did the only thing that a a ruler could do, he executed his advisor. Um, but uh, uh, but it, again, <clears throat> when you double something every uh, two years, uh, and we double the number of tra transistors on a chip every two years, according to Moore's law, uh, then 
uh, continued iterations of that uh, become gigantic in absolute value. Uh, so it could be that the gigantic increases in, in processing capacity and speed that we see over the next decade may induce qualitative changes in the, in the way we live. Uh, so it's possible. Uh, but uh, right now, there are no signs uh, in the statistics that that is in the offing. Uh, and uh, the best estimates of productivity growth over the next 20, 10 to 20 years uh, are sort of more or less an average of the past 20, so some good, some bad, uh, but not at those levels uh, from mid-century that would be needed to keep growth on the uh, traditional 2% uh, path. Uh, so that's, uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, the silver lining of this cloud, I think, uh, is on the policy side. Uh, it's a conjecture, no more than that, but there seems to be a trade-off uh, between uh, conditions for growth on the one hand and conditions for good economic policy making on the other. Um, that is, when uh, external conditions are extremely favorable to growth, policymakers can do quite a bad job and they can uh, uh, produce pretty lousy policies. And still, because the conditions are so favorable, uh, growth rates will still look good. So China has grown 7, 8, 9, 10% a year for years and years now with a system of policies and institutions far inferior to our own. The reason it's able to grow so much is because its conditions for growth are much more favorable. It's a much more backward economy. It has much more capacity for catch-up growth. Uh, so uh, it may well be uh, that the deterioration in, uh, in external conditions for growth now in the United States will tighten constraints on policymakers, that the kinds of anti-growth policies that we have maintained uh, for decades now and have shrugged our shoulders about doing anything about because they're so politically entrenched, uh, things may look very different politically after uh, years and years of substandard growth. Uh, when economic performance deteriorates, electorates get uh, edgy and upset, uh, they start looking for opposition parties uh, to try to run things for a while. Uh, plan Bs get suggested in alternative uh, to the status quo. Uh, sometimes those Plan Bs could be worse, uh, but uh, the general pattern of, uh, of global political economy over the past generation or so has been a steady move towards pro more pro-market, more pro-growth policies, uh, and generally that has been driven uh, by poor economic performance. Uh, motivating policy changes. So uh, the bad news is that growth is slowing down. The good news could be uh, that over the next decade or so, we're going to have a much more favorable environment for making uh, pro-growth changes in our policies. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think they will, because I, yeah, I don't did. know what I did. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Brank and, and Cato, for inviting me uh, here. I appreciate it. I'm going to get my water. Um, as uh, as uh, somebody said earlier, uh, a lot of the work that I've done on economic growth has been around uh, supply. So how do you get productivity up, or how do you explain the pattern of productivity? Um, but, uh, and I'm sure that's why Brink asked me to uh, participate in this, uh, in this conference today, and I'm very happy to, to talk about that and have questions afterwards. But uh, I want to talk about now, um, this is a paper that I wrote with uh, Barry Bosworth, and I think I want to make the case that uh, the constraint on growth for the last five years, and may well be for the next five years, is on the aggregate demand side. 
that we just are not getting enough aggregate demand, and that is also affecting uh, us on the supply side as, as well. So how do I get the first uh, slide to come up? Oh, I use this thing here. Okay. So this first chart is taken, um, I think, was not original to us. We borrowed it from a combination, I think, of CBO and maybe one of the, the Federal Reserve banks. And it shows potential output and real output, and the fact that there really has been very little closing of the gap between actual output and potential output. So we really have not had a recovery back to what is thought of and Brink talked about as the potential or potential output growth. Now, you can see there has been a little bit of convergence towards it, but the only reason for that is that the potential GDP line has been bent down, and that's because CBO has been continually reducing its estimate of potential GDP growth. Some of that is a reduced estimate of uh, total factor productivity, uh, labor productivity growth, uh, investment plus t um, total factor productivity, but a lot of it is because of uh, an estimate of labor supply, exactly what uh, Brink talked about in the, in the previous discussion. <clears throat> so uh, this illustrates the, the same point uh, rather dramatically. As we can see, the, the ratio of civilian employment to population has dropped precipitously in the recession, the Great Recession, and really has not recovered hardly at all. Okay, so we, we, we are getting this just lack of uh, recovery, the kind of recovery we normally would expect to get after any recession, and particularly would expect to get after a deep recession, where it's sort of the, the uh, sort of elastic uh, idea that if you get a deep recession, you pull the elastic way back here, and then you let it go, and the economy bounces back, as it did after the 75 recession or after the 82 recession, but we really haven't had that kind of recovery. Okay, now some of the decline in the employment to population growth, uh, excuse me, em employment to population rate is because of demographics. We know that the baby boom generation is starting to retire. We know that women are not coming into the workforce in the, in the same way. So this is a, a, a figure that we constructed showing what you would have expected the labor force participation rate to be um, based on demographic change. So in other words, we know that uh, older people work less. Uh, we know that, that uh, younger people go to school and so on. So adjusting for this demographic change, that's the red line. Okay, so that's saying what we would have expected. And indeed, I think that was pretty much what the CBO's estimate of potential GDP growth was based on when they originally had the line higher. As you can see, the actual participation rate has been much lower than that. So people are choosing not to participate in the workforce. Either that's because they're making uh, different choices. Uh, as, as Brink said, women are not coming into the workforce, and actually, I think it, it's declining a little bit, the uh, rate of female labor force participation. That could be choices about, about how they spend their time. But I think the strong suspicion here is that there really haven't been good jobs available. People are not taking the jobs that are there. Um, and uh, so the, the participation rate has fallen down somewhat as a result of the recession itself. Uh, this is an eye test. We'll give you a, a check on the way out. Um, but let me just summarize uh, what it says. So uh, the, the gap between actual and potential, and remember the potential has been adjusted down, uh, as of the second quarter of 2013 was 5.7% of, of GDP, as opposed to 7.4% the, in the, the bottom of the recession itself. 
So we haven't had much recovery, even uh, uh, with some downward adjustment of, of potential GDP. Now, of the, looking at the shares of uh, aggregate demand, consumption, non-residential investment, residential investment, net exports, federal government, state and local government, where is the demand coming from and where is it not coming from? Well, a big shortfall is on consumption. So we can say that as of the period before 2007, Americans were spending, spending, spending. We know that the, the personal saving rate went to about 2%, so we were spending 98% of our income. Now we're spending only about 94%. But the other problem, of course, is that the growth of income is much less. So this is a chicken and egg problem. This is an endogenous business cycle issue. The consumption is weak uh, quite a bit because uh, income is weak, um, and also because uh, people's houses have gone down in value, so they're not willing to spend at the same rate they were spending before. We know that uh, residential investment is another, uh, uh, another source uh, where we don't have the level of demand we had before. Um, net exports has improved a little bit, but again, that's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. That's because imports are down, and that's because consumption uh, is down. Uh, the, the other part is that federal government and state and local government spending are also down. Now, these are federal and state and local purchases of goods and services, so they don't include um, transfers, stuff like uh, Medicare and, and Social Security. But uh, the spending part, the, the demand from the government for goods and services, the direct demand uh, is down. So these are the places where we don't have the level of uh, demand. And already, you can see there's a bit of concern there because back in 2005 or so, lots of people, including me and Barry, were complaining that con consumption level was too high, we weren't saving enough, were complaining that uh, we were too dependent on residential investment. So we, we, we don't necessarily want to go back to where we were in 2005. We really want to replace some of that demand with other demand. That's what we're looking for to get back to full employment. Uh, this is a chart, and you've all seen the, the, the effects of this. Um, the number of mortgages that are uh, uh, underwater is 24% overall, very concentrated, uh, more concentrated in certain parts of the, of the country. So this just tells you or one reason why consumption and residential investment uh, are not at the level they were before the Great Recession. Uh, this is a chart that, um, that uh, Brink had up, and uh, I want to, uh, what? no, this was business investment against business saving. You had national investment against national saving. And so one of the things I want to note here is that um, business are now net savers. And that's very unusual. If you look back uh, all the way to 1970 or before that, uh, we see that businesses are now, and we've all read this, are holding on to cash. So businesses are sitting on lots of money. Some of it's out, out of the country, some of it's in the country. So businesses are saving a lot, and they're not choosing to in invest it. Now, this is business investment as a percent of GDP. So you have to be a little careful about how you interpret this. Uh, this is nominal dollars over nominal dollars. And one of the reasons we have a declining trend in business investment is because there's been a big shift to computer investment, and computers have gotten cheaper over time. So the price index for computers has gone down relative to the price index for GDP. So even though the share of investment has gone down, we're in a sense um, getting more for our money, assuming that you believe that the, the computer price index is the, is the right number. On the other hand, if you're thinking of business investment as a source of demand, of job creation, of, of uh, generating uh, uh, demand around the economy, <clears throat> then nominal dollar, so to speak, the nominal dollar share is the right number 
uh, to look at. The other reason that business investment is, is low is because we're no longer such a manufacturing economy. A very large fraction of business investment is uh, in the manufacturing sector. Uh-oh, I'm running out of time. Um, so uh, we, we, we're just not a big, so if you compare the United States with a very small manufacturing sector in terms of percent of GDP versus China, uh, one of the reasons our investment rate is much slow, lower is because we're not doing, we're not building the big uh, manufacturing projects that we built at a different point in our history or that other countries are, are doing. Now, I think since I've only got a couple of minutes, I'm gonna uh, restrict myself now to just saying a couple of things about what we might uh, do about this. Well, we wanna get business investment going, even though if it, it won't necessarily go back to the level it was at before, but I think it's possible that uh, unlikely that it could be higher. I don't believe business investment is constrained by the low saving rate uh, because uh, uh, interest rates are very low. It's not that uh, borrowing, for example, is, is uh, is expensive. It's more that businesses, or that businesses don't have the money to invest. They have lots of money to invest. They're choosing not to invest. So why are they not investing? Well, I think we are in a Keynesian low equilibrium trap. In other words, we don't have enough demand, so income is not growing, so businesses aren't, investment, aren't investing, consumers aren't spending, so we're stuck in a cycle of uh, low demand growth and low overall growth. However, I think there are some things that could be done to improve the investment uh, climate and uh, help us get out of this hole. I do think regulation is part of it. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not Cato, in other words, I'm not someone who thinks that regulation is, is the be all and end all, but I do think we have gotten a very complex, too complex regulatory structure that we need to simplify and rationalize, and that would help improve business investment. And, and the, the um, Obamacare, and again, I'm a supporter of universal health care, but I think Obamacare is affecting particularly small business and maybe other businesses. Um, and so I think there is a case for trying to rationalize and improve our regulatory structure. I think we also um, would be well advised not to follow the contractionary fiscal policies we're now following. So I think fiscal uh, spending, I think we could spend more money on infrastructure. I think we could to spend more money on education, and that would help not only aggregate demand, but aggregate supply as well, and, and would uh, speak to some of the needs that I think the economy, uh, the economy has. So I think there's a, a scope for changing our fiscal policy. This is not the moment, in my view, uh, to push for budget balance, although I strongly support that goal over the next, uh, over the next 10 years. And the last thing is more emphasis on uh, skills. We, I don't think the lack of employment is primarily because people uh, don't have the skills after we had full employment in 2007 or in 2000, and I think the skill problems were just as great then as they are now. So I don't think we've had a sudden deterioration of skills, uh, but I think if we could improve the skills of the workforce, we could fill some of the unfilled vacancies and also help to get the, the out of this low-level equilibrium trap that we're in. Thank you. I like this paper very much. Uh, I agreed with uh, most of it. I thought it was interesting and important. So uh, all positive comments. Let me speak just a bit on some of the things I think were left out. Virtually all of these will favor the paper's conclusion. 
one or two at the end may not. I'll leave those till later. Uh, I see growth risk as itself another reason to be worried about the rate of growth. So the future rate of growth is risky. If our future rate of growth is only a little bit higher than the CBO projection, even long term, our budget situation will be okay. But the flip side of that is if our future rate of growth is just a wee bit lower, our future fiscal situation will be much, much worse. And you see this in the Eurozone, that growth risk itself can be a source of lower growth, that you get an implosion, you're led to bad economic policy, you raise taxes when you shouldn't, other bad things happen. So if you want to push down those estimates, uh, I think looking at growth risk will make you an even bigger worrier uh, than Brink is. A second, Martin mentioned this also, regulation. We're at Cato. Let's complain about regulation. Uh, mostly those are going up. I would say there's at least two areas where I think they should be going up, which is climate change and finance. But in those areas, they're going up in number, but not going up in effectiveness. So we're regulating more heavily that which we should not. We're failing to be simple and tough where we should be. That's another future whammy. Uh, in my view, it's going to get worse. Uh, put that on the cart, add it to the scales. Another factor, I call it the peace bubble. Most of these projections are assuming that the world as a whole is mostly very peaceful. You know, an even money bet, I would bet for peace to continue. But if you look at the Middle East, uh, the South China Sea, and East Asia, I think there's some chance of the peace bubble going away. Uh, we know for, say, the last few decades, we've mostly had peace. We really don't know that for the next few decades, we're going to have that same level of peace. So the risk there, I think, is almost completely on the downside. So the upside risk of getting like Cuba and North Korea on the Cato bandwagon, that would be great, but it's not going to add that much to US growth or even global GDP. But the peace bubble bursting would again make things be much worse. And I just wouldn't want to take that one for granted. Uh, the education slowdown, I agree with Brink's remarks, but I think it's worse than he's saying. I think uh, he should focus more on the biggest problem. And he, he says this indirectly, I think. The biggest problem is people getting educated, but we end up with the PhD carrying yoga instructor or the cab driver with a master's degree or an undergraduate degree. So it seems we're training more and more people the old way. The economy is changing faster than higher education. So without the classroom experience really getting any worse, education is just much less effective, and the ways we're measuring it are much less important. Uh, and I worry about this a lot. We need to change education and higher education. I guess I think we will do it. We haven't done it yet. We could do it tomorrow. There's still a big lag till you get those returns. So we're in a 20-year-plus whammy on the education metric, worse, I think, uh, than the numbers show. Uh, another factor, climate change. Uh, I don't know when those major costs will kick in. I'm not sure how much they'll come to the United States. But I view on the climate side, the environmental side, there being more downside potential uh, than upside potential. So that, again, if you're just adding items to the scale, we could add to the scale covered in Brink's paper and uh, be more pessimistic. Uh, I put a lot of stock in energy prices. So if we think, when did the modern growth miracle really start? In my view, there's two big events. One is coal in England, and the other is oil and other fossil fuels which I date mostly 1870s. And that gives rise to the modern era. Phenomenal growth spurt. If you look at the percentage of coal in British GDP 
or the percentage of oil in U.S. GDP in 1872, you're not going to see energy prices as important, but they're incredibly important. When does the, the slowdown really start? It's 1973, right? What happened to 1973? Was it something Nixon did? Maybe a little bit, but mostly, right, it's the much higher price for energy. So even though energy is a small chunk of GDP, I think it's economically more important to external benefits and costs. And again, if you ask, what does our future hold for energy prices? Uh, that's a hard guess. Obviously, I'm not trading on any forecast I have, but one can easily imagine our above historical average for high growth period energy prices as persisting, even with fracking, even with the U.S. becoming the Saudi Arabia of 2030. I'm not sure that global energy prices are going down very much. So again, there, there's for the next 20 to 30 years, probably more negative side risk uh, than upside risk. So that's a lot of factors making one much more pessimistic. Uh, I would just say to Brink, your argument is in some ways stronger than you thought. Put those in to the extent you agree. <clears throat> what might push us in a more optimistic direction? And here there's two big things. One of them I don't believe in. Uh, the other I think I do. And I would just want to see more counters to these. The first is just the global dimension. So if you look at the growth history of Great Britain, at some point, Beatles aside, Monty Python aside, you know, they slow down their innovation and they take things from Germany, from the US, other places. So domestic TFP matters less and less. So the US may get in this position. We may get a lot of new innovations from China. Uh, when, I don't know. Personally, this is the one I guess I don't buy. But I do look around. If I think of my own field, economics, forget about China. Just look at Europe, look at Asia. Economics departments are much, much better than they were five or 10 years ago. It's really striking how much they've improved and the quality of research there. Uh, so to the extent something like that is true for the sciences, you could imagine TFP becoming more global. And no one who analyzes the Icelandic economy gets up in the morning worried because Icelandic TFP is low, right? Uh, most of the innovations come from outside, not for that fish shark thing they bury in the ground, but uh, for most things that determine the standard of living. So simple question, you're born a genius. Uh, is your chance today of being discovered and creating something much greater than it was 10 or 20 years ago? You're born a genius in China or India. Yes, that chance is much greater. That's one reason to be optimistic. I don't quite see it yet. I'm not convinced, but I'm not willing to write it off. And I'd be curious to hear Brink's thoughts on that. Uh, the other one I guess I do believe is just, will computers be the next general purpose technology, just as fossil fuels were for the previous growth revolution? And I tend to think they will be. I think we've overrated what they've done for us so far, but we're underrating uh, what they're still going to do for us. So on this, there's my own book, Averages Over. There's Grinnelson and McAfee. Uh, there are two books, the new one's coming out in January. So I'm pretty optimistic here. We're a little uncertain about the time horizon. And I personally don't believe this will lead to growth in middle-class incomes, but I think it will lead to an awful lot of economic growth. And if that's true, all the other pessimist, pessimistic reasons could be somewhat true. We could have bad policies, bad whatever. But my view is that general purpose technologies, get one going, then do spin-offs, invent electricity, get combustion engines, get fossil fuels, spin out all the implications. The gains from that can, you know, outdo a 70% or even 80% marginal tax rate. It's amazing how good general purpose technologies would be. So to truly get on board with the pessimistic case for the future, 
uh, I'd want an argument that computers are not going to be a big deal as the next general purpose technology. Let me say just a little bit about Martin's comments, because I think I mostly don't agree with them. I agree fully that at least up through 2010, maybe 2011, demand side was a big constraint. I just don't think it is 2013. And I think his presentation is assuming there's a demand side constraint. Uh, today, nominal GDP is more than 10% higher than before the pre-crash peak. Prices are much higher. Uh, that to me says demand. It would be nice if it were a little stronger. But the idea that you have these sticky wages, we've already eaten into them a fair amount with nominal growth. We didn't do it nearly as quickly as we should have. Uh, but I think in, in the nominal territory, we're in that home free zone where some of our problems from responding too slowly are baked in. But I don't think, say, inflating more today would get us much more demand side growth. Another way to look at this, if you take the demand side arguments, even if you agree with them completely, they're actually more pessimistic about the supply side than the supply side arguments. Because since recovery started, median wage in this country has gone down about 5 to 6%, right? Which is incredible, I think. So if you think we need more Keynesian demand side stimulus, you're in essence saying those wages need to fall even more. So you're even more of a pessimist on the wage dimension and ultimately the real side of the economy. So I don't think demand side arguments, even if you accept them, get you out of supply side pessimism. In some ways, uh, they intensify it. And some of our demand side problems, I think, are supply side. So the iPhone comes out, iPad comes out in bad times. A lot of people buy them. You know, the, the demand comes when there's good stuff to buy. Uh, when you have low innovation, you'll have demand and supply side problems being correlated. There's an identification problem. Uh, but again, the demand side theories have predicted we'd have disinflation, and we really haven't seen that. We've just had inflation that was too slow and too low and wasn't high enough. Uh, but I think basically supply side's what matters. I agree with most of Brink's points. You can add on more. And then those two things, the global dimension and computers as a general purpose technology, uh, that's the case for optimism. Let's think about those more to come. Thank you. So we're going to open the floor up for questions. Uh, and there's microphones in the back if you want to just put your hand up. The gentleman in the back. Yeah, go ahead. I've got several, but I'll keep it to one for now. Thanks. Robert Schroeder with International Investor. Um, well, one for Mr. Bailey. Um, as we see the labor force decrease, I'm not sure if that's in absolute numbers. I know I noticed the charts are in percentages. But is it, it's a natural outcome, therefore, that productivity will gain because aren't, aren't we using a common denominator of the units of labor? So if we see the same percentage or the same amount of gross product produced by a lesser number of employees, we instantly have a productivity gain. And then if I can slip one more in, uh, we did hear mention, uh, well, let me, let me just simplify it. Are we too fixated on growth? In other words, should we be measuring growth not just by simple gains in GDP, but more specifically gains in GDP per capita? 
Uh, shall I start responding on that? Um, clearly, labor productivity is output per worker or output per hour. So if you increase output per hour, uh, that is a, a productivity gain. Um, whether an economy where the labor force is growing more slowly is necessarily one where productivity growth is faster is, is a little more questionable, I think. Um, I think you can make that case. Uh, productivity slowed down in the 1970s and early 80s, which was a period of very rapid labor force growth. Um, so I think there's some, uh, there's some correlation which tells you that a period of uh, low labor force growth may actually uh, allow lab labor productivity output per hour to be a little higher. You don't need as much capital formation when the when the growth of the labor force is, is slower. Brink may, uh, may want to uh, put a different perspective on that. Are we fixated on growth? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty fixated on growth. Um, I do think growth in per capita income is probably a, a much better measure of, of uh, rise in living standards, so I, I, I agree with that. Uh, when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors under, under Bill Clinton, uh, and we were doing the economic report of the president in 2000, um, we were sort of looking at century trends, and we found what Brink found, which is that we had this 2% uh, growth in per capita income. And, and it was sort of a remarkable thing, because the U.S. has not been in the most dynamic economy in all periods, or even in most periods, but is the richest economy because of the constancy of this growth over uh, 100 years, which we hope uh, uh, comes back. Um, my uh, colleague on the council, uh, Robert Lawrence, wanted to call that the 2% solution to American prosperity. Uh, we didn't do that because the 2% solution in uh, Sherlock Holmes stories refers to the 2% solution of cocaine that he used to inject <laughs> in his veins. So we didn't think that was a good, uh, a good thing to put on that. But uh, yes, the growth, the long run growth in per capita income is the thing that fuels uh, living standards, although over the last few years, the distribution of that income has also been a concern. Uh, on the point uh, of GDP versus GDP per capita, all of my analysis uh, uh, is looking at GDP per capita. Um, <clears throat> the trends are magnified uh, when you just look at raw GDP because we're having uh, just slow population growth. Uh, but uh, and that in itself will will uh, will knock down the overall uh, aggregate growth rate. Uh, but what I'm focused on and is <clears throat> is the per capita growth rate. Uh, one can also say, well, should we still focus so much on GDP? Uh, maybe it's leaving out a lot of aspects of welfare, uh, and indeed, I think it is. Uh, <clears throat> there uh, are arguments that uh, that it is becoming a less good measure of utility or welfare than it was in the past, when uh, when it was uh, more when GDP was more tangible production of widgets. Uh, um, Tyler in uh, in uh, the Great Stagnation argues that the internet has been better for welfare than it has been for GDP, uh, and so you can see uh, in the, the 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 most vibrant technological sector of our time, in the internet sector, uh, a lot of the best things about it are free stuff uh, and replacing things we used to buy uh, uh, with free apps uh, that come with our phone. Uh, so, uh, in that sense. Progress in welfare may actually be consistent with, uh, at the margins, less GDP than before. Uh, but still, 
uh, GDP per capita is the best measure we have right now of output. And it is true that uh, the changes in distribution of income mean that less of that income is going to people in the middle uh, of the uh, of the spectrum than before. But even so, uh, I think uh, that uh, the problem with decades-long comparison of real incomes is that it can never satisfactorily account for all the new products that are uh, available today that were available at no price uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago. So even if median incomes today are the same as they were in 1989, and there's a huge statistical food fight about exactly how to make these adjustments, but even if they are, I doubt anyone would trade the uh, the consumption packet available at today's median income for the consumption packet available at the 1989 median income because there's all this stuff that's available now that wasn't available back then. So even if it isn't translating into income gains, higher GDP uh, per capita is translating into, into living standards gains. Uh, and so therefore, it's important. Uh, next question. Right in the middle here. Uh, hello. Uh, I was curious about what your views are on central bank policy, because I believe all three of you are worried about innovation. I'm worried about that too, but I think it's because central bank policy is leading to massive malinvestment in housing bubbles across the United States, Western Europe, and Southeast, a <clears throat> Southeast Asia. I'll make a quick comment. Uh, this is not the, really the area of this, of this conference, so I'll, I'll, I'll make it brief. Um, I think there were, I supported the idea of moving interest rates down because I do think we had an aggregate demand problem, which I actually think we still have. Um, so keeping interest rates low, low, I think, is the right policy. Um, but it's not a terribly good policy. It's not a terribly effective policy. It has not restored full employment. And as you correctly point out, it tends to benefit the interest-sensitive parts of the economy, which are, are housing. Um, which in a way we'd like to recover a little bit, but not go back to a, a bubble. And uh, other forms of, of interest-sensitive uh, automobile purchases are doing well, for example. So we'd, we'd like, it. what it doesn't seem to do is to really generate increases in business investment, which is what we'd like to do to get growth rates up. So I think it's a limited uh, policy. It may have even lost its usefulness at this point. Let me wheel around to answering your question, but let me address something that Martin raised first. Uh, I'm uh, uh, enough of a, uh, I've been persuaded sufficiently by uh, Scott Sumner at Bentley University and his market monetarism school that focuses on, uh, on the nominal GDP growth as the appropriate uh, pole star for monetary policy. Uh, I'm sufficiently persuaded uh, by his analysis to think that we still do have an aggregate demand uh, problem uh, and, uh, and that uh, things would be better uh, with greater monetary stimulus than, than we have experienced uh, over the past few years uh, or even are experiencing today in the uh, uh, less effective than possible uh, quantitative easing less effective than possible because it's expressly temporary. Um, so, uh, but I don't think, uh, again, uh, that the uh, the aggregate demand shortfall to the extent it exists is is part of the story that I'm telling here today. In fact, uh, the possibility that it does exists 
gives rise to the possibility of a false dawn, that is, uh, demand-side recovery uh, that allows uh, uh, this output gap between actual output and potential output to be closed, which looks like rollicking growth. Then we hit the potential uh, rate, which is actually much lower than our historical norm. Uh, so people uh, get their hopes up and then are dashed. Um, I take it. Yeah, so <laughs> um, as to your point, uh, I, I think the the larger way to frame this is uh, what is the effect of macroeconomic volatility on long-term growth rates? That is, boom and bust cycles, do they uh, uh, have an effect on, uh, on not just on the cyclical patterns, but on structural patterns as well? There is research uh, on this that suggests that greater volatility is bad for long-term growth rates. Uh, the author uh, of this particular study I'm thinking of right now has uh, flown from my mind, but uh, and it it's certainly seems uh, logical uh, that, uh, that it would be the case. Uh, so uh, uh, that uh, goes to the conclusion that, that a, uh, a better uh, monetary policy that is less vulnerable to booms and busts would be better for long-term growth. When it comes to today, I'd be very happy to have a looser monetary policy. I think in a given year, say for two years, we'd pick up half a percentage point of growth. I'm willing to do that. I think your comment, though, gets at some international imbalances. It means we sustain bubbles in Southeast Asia for longer. How do we make that normative trade-off? I'm not sure. So, but in, in Brink's longer run, as he points out, this is not mostly about monetary policy. What we're going to do is have something not too far from price level targeting. It's not perfect. We could do better. But the difference between that and doing better, I'm not sure, is so great looking out over the next 20 years. Yeah, here in the corner. Uh, Ken Meyercourt, World Docs. Um, growth implies increasing pressure on finite resources. Uh, and we're seeing that, I think, already, in particularly with regard to oil, where we're having to go to more and more desperate measures to uh, maintain our supply of fracking, deep water drilling, feeding corn to our cars, um, which implies that perhaps we're reaching the limits to growth, to use a venerable phrase. Um, it may be that in the long run, we're going to be looking at not slow growth, but negative growth. Shouldn't we consider that possibility and, and do some planning uh, towards dropping our addiction to growth and planning for a zero growth world? You just wrote a book about the glowing future? <laughs> well, look, what's the price of oil? It's not that high. Uh, I'm not out there trading against that price. I'm not going long. I'm not buying calls on oil. Uh, maybe you're not either. So best guess looking forward is we know the current scarcity of oil. It's somewhat of a constraint on growth. So when you have the Libyan episode, that's a small interruption in the world's oil supply. It does seem that it pinched the world economy more tightly than we would have expected. But again, this very dire future where we run out of energy, there's some progress in renewables. There's always a chance of some kind of wild card falling from the sky. I don't see any market prices in the energy sector indicating that these dire scenarios are likely. So I think the most likely outcome is we don't have as much oil as we'd like to. We also have an ongoing problem with climate change. Some places will still use dirty coal. 
will squeak by. U.S. will pick up another 10 to 15 percent on the renewable side. No one from any point of view will really be happy. But that it's as bad as you say, I just don't see the evidence for that. Can I uh, just throw in a comment there? That I work, uh, as well as my work at Brookings, I work with the McKinsey Global Institute, and there are a couple of studies just uh, recently come out. One was about commodities and the shortage of commodities. And there does seem to have been um, a shift. Commodity prices, if anything, uh, had grown more slowly for many, many years than, than other prices. Uh, so those were, those were cheaper. And that's been a, a turnaround in the last time. I'm not sure where the, when the turnaround occurred. Um, maybe it had something to do with the growth of China taking up more uh, resources. Uh, so I think that is going to be a dampener on growth, assume, unless we... I mean, on the energy side, I think the U.S. is actually rather favorably positioned. Um, but, uh, y you know, it is going to be harder to get the natural resources that we need. I think that's going to be a damper on growth. But it's also going to be an encouragement to innovation to find a way to economize on uh, the use of materials and also to recycle more materials. So when the price goes up, there are positive effects that come from uh, that also. Uh, so I don't think that's going to be the big thing that, that uh, slows growth down to zero, although it may slow it relative to what it would be with uh, all abundant uh, materials. The second report, and I, this is to be more optimistic, um, is uh, about game changes, of which uh, increased energy supply is one of them. But I think there are also a number of uh, technologies, and, <clears throat> and uh, Tyler talks about that, uh, that are really going to potentially, could potentially change uh, the growth rate and get us back up to faster growth rate of, of potential. Uh, and energy is only one of those. Yeah, I, I would say that the resource limits to growth uh, have this thus far persistent habit of receding. Um, and uh, there was a lot of talk about peak oil uh, a few years ago, not so much today uh, with uh, fracking on the rise. Um, I, I would also point out that uh, that economic growth uh, and physical growth, that is more stuff, more larger human footprint, more resource use, uh, are not synonymous. They have gone hand in hand historically, uh, but one can imagine a world uh, in which uh, resource consumption is, uh, is flat while uh, output continues uh, to rise. Uh, we have seen already over the course of the uh, experience of modern economic growth, the uh, resources used uh, per dollar of GDP have gone down over time. They just haven't gone down fast enough to, to make overall resource use go down. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, <clears throat> resource limits do not ultimately uh, imply uh, limits on, uh, on growth itself because there's all kinds of ways to, uh, to as Paul Romer puts it, come up with better recipes uh, for mixing elements together with, without actually using more elements. Just for folks who might have not been able to hear, the question is about what's better in economics departments in the last five or ten years. You know, I was referring to uh, Europe and also parts of Asia. So if you go now to schools like University of Copenhagen or Erasmus in Rotterdam, uh, not so much Italy and even not so much Germany, but a lot of the continent now, they have very good departments with people being well-published, 
I think what's new is just you had a big uptick in foreign graduate students, and now they're through that pipeline. A lot of them want to live in Europe in their home countries. Uh, you have good departments all over the place. You, you look at Asia, a country like Singapore, at least in their business schools, there are documented cases where they're offering researchers or teachers seven-figure salaries to go work in Singapore. Those schools are getting better. Now, that's just one small piece of the puzzle. But universities definitely are getting better. Beijing University is no longer completely crippled by politics. It's only somewhat crippled. It's pouring out geniuses at a pretty high rate. I'm just saying, if you want to look for some reasons to be optimistic about US TFP on the global side, you can find them. I'm still personally actually skeptical on that one. But I can see a, a pretty decent case for optimism just based on that alone. And mostly I was just saying uh, to Brink, you know, asking what he thought. Yeah, yeah. On, just because I never got a chance to respond to Tyler on that. I think longer term, uh, the rise of the rest of the world uh, is uh, good news for our economy. Uh, for uh, up to now, most of the world is free riding off innovations uh, that occur disproportionately here. Uh, it will be nice uh, to, to reverse roles uh, and be able to draft off of Chinese and Indian innovations. Uh, and I expect that over the course of the 21st century, we're going to, uh, we're going to get there. Um, but uh, again, my focus is over the next decade or so, and I don't see that happening uh, so shortly. Right here in this middle. The gentleman over on this side there. Yeah. Uh, thank you. My name is Anders Roslund, Peterson Institute. I find Vatunov is uh, far too pessimistic. <laughs> here we are in a post-bubble period, and uh, we are seeing uh, substantial deleveraging. And at the same time, the economy is growing by 2% a year. To my mind, the US economy is the normal economy today. And uh, uh, since Martin left uh, the White House, there hasn't been much of good uh, structural policy to talk about in the US. So there's a massive potential here. Uh, Tyler mentioned some of it, but the tax system is getting worse by the year since low pools are added. The US has the worst tax system in the Western world in terms of bureaucracy. And this is an enormous potential that can only get better uh, sometime. Uh, and then a very poorly functioning legal system. I was uh, surprised to hear uh, the economic freedom of the world uh, that you uh, presented recently, or Jim Gorton presented, uh, that the US is now the 38th worst uh, functioning legal system in the world, or comes on thir ranks 38. And that's a steady deterioration. Sometimes it has to improve. We are waiting for an online revolution in education. And perhaps even the US government could start uh, learning how to use online uh, after the, the current Obamacare uh, uh, problems. And uh, uh, commodities prices, as we mentioned, are set to fall. We have a shale gas revolution. The US is totally dominant when it comes to the high-tech companies and also biotech and others. Uh, there are more dominant U.S. big companies today than hardly any other time. So I see an excellent period for the U.S. economy after this little deleveraging is over. Thank you. Um, I, I intended to mention uh, taxation as one issue. Um, 
The, the, uh, the rate of growth during the 1990s was pretty strong when taxation was, uh, was fairly high and uh, uh, we did end up with balanced budgets in 1990 and 2000. So I, I don't want to go too far in uh, uh, this, but I do think we do have a very inefficient tax system. I think the corporate tax... Uh, Laura Tyson, uh, not exactly a conservative, uh, has spoken in support of abolishing the corporate tax. And I think there's a case... Uh, for that. And even if you couldn't abolish it, you should uh, lower the marginal tax rates and try to uh, simplify it. It's, it's uh, something where the U.S. has to be competitive with the rest of the world and is one reason uh, we're not getting more investment here. So I, I agree with that. So no argument from me, uh, that, uh, no argument from the Cato Institute, uh, that uh, American public policy is in need of, uh, of uh, significant upgrade. Um, <clears throat> uh, and indeed, the whole reason I wrote this paper was to motivate an ongoing project of, well, what do we do about it? Which uh, it is, uh, I've come to the conclusion that, uh, uh, to use Tyler's metaphor from, uh, uh, from uh, the Great Segnation, that today the low-hanging fruit uh, as far as uh, boosting growth is public policy change. These are things that we know uh, that could improve economic performance, uh, and they're they're ripe for the taking. Uh, the problem is this low-hanging fruit is guarded by dragons, uh, the, the, the political process. Um, but uh, uh, again, um, uh, I think that the experience of the unpleasant, uh, prolonged experience of substandard growth rates, which we are likely to, uh, to have in store for us, will, uh, I hope, provide motivation uh, for uh, slaying some of those dragons and grabbing some of that low-hanging fruit. I think we're going to take one more question. Jim Allen with CFA Institute. Um, and sort of on that last point, um, one of the things that uh, is oftentimes seen as being a um, sort of a motivator of growth is the small, medium-sized enterprises. And I guess I wanted to ask just to what extent does uh, regulation on these companies, particularly going public, um, can have on sort of the uh, monetizing that uh, the growth that these companies may may sort of have in in them. Uh, well, this is a dimension uh, that I, I didn't discuss so much in the paper, but is certainly on my mind, uh, uh, particularly since I spent uh, two years uh, working at the Kauffman Foundation, uh, which has uh, which works on entrepreneurship and encouraging uh, uh, new business startups, and uh, they have uh, succeeded in uh, widely popularizing uh, the the insight that it is less small and medium uh, enterprises than new enterprises uh, that are the real engine for job growth as well as uh, innovation and dynamism. Um, and there is uh, actually a fair, uh, some interesting research uh, by a number of people, but uh, I'm particularly thinking of John Haltewanger at the University of Maryland, which suggests that we're in a kind of long-term decline uh, in, uh, in dynamism in terms of new business formation, the rate at which they form, the rate at which they grow, et cetera, that predates, uh, that's actually been going for a couple of decades now that the numbers uh, keep looking worse. Uh, we do know that, uh, that uh, in almost uh, every year over the past uh, uh, 30 years or so, um, if it weren't for new businesses, net job creation in the United States would be negative. Uh, so uh, existing enterprises create jobs all the time. They just destroy even more. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> so for job growth, it's clear that, the, uh, that 
uh, a favorable environment for entrepreneurship and new business formation is a favorable environment for job creation. Uh, also on innovation, of course, existing enterprises innovate all the time, but they tend to do so on the margins. The real game-changing discontinuous innovations usually uh, come uh, from new companies simply because uh, to introduce those uh, uh, innovations in an existing uh, company would cause that company to cannibalize its own profit centers, and they're uh, seldom willing to do that. Uh, so again, if you want uh, vibrant innovation, you want a favorable uh, uh, environment for uh, new business formation. And uh, among other things, uh, the increased difficulty of bringing companies public uh, uh, makes uh, investment in an early stage startup uh, less attractive now than it was in the past because the, the payoff of the IPO isn't there. Uh, so I think with that, we'll, we've already gone a little bit over, so we'll, we'll wrap up. But thanks so much to Brink uh, for convening this, and to Martin and Tyler for coming, uh, and, and to all of you for being here as well. Thanks so much.